You've survived the worst. Trauma, loss, rejection. The reality is, your pain can be a crutch, or it can be the thing that launches you. You're listening to the Purpose Through Pain podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you experience true freedom and breakthrough. Tune in each week as guests share their incredible life lessons from their personal stories and hear from experts who can give you the tools you need to stop surviving and start thriving. Here to help you find purpose through your pain is your host, Joseph James. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another great show of Purpose Through Pain podcast. I am your host, Joseph James, and today we have an amazing guest, Jane Epstein. She is a sibling sexual abuse survivor. She's an expert and advocate who speaks publicly about and provides guidance and tools for prevention and victim recovery. Miss Jane's passion is to work and her life mission is to bring awareness to the staggering statistics of sibling sexual abuse surviving and largely ignored segments of sexual abuse. Miss Jane, thank you so much and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me and thank you to your listeners. <laughs> Absolutely. So this is not something that this is uh, the first subject we've had of this on on the show and there's no doubt that this probably happens all over the world and even goes unreported, unannounced, you know, and and hidden in probably so many different ways, but where does this go back to you as as a child living in a happy family? What what's take us back to that time frame? Sure, I I was about six years old. We were raised in a religious home. Father was a school psychologist. Mother was a school teacher. Two older siblings. Parents did the best they could. They thought they were following all the rules. And I had an older sibling who was 12, I was six. And children between the ages of 10 to 14, particularly boys are going through a lot of hormonal change. They have a lot of questions, their bodies are changing. And my sibling didn't have a place to go and get questions answered. We were close and one point he made a conscious decision that he was curious and he needed to know more and I was available, which is very common. Sibling sexual abuse is very common. It accounts for up to 40% of childhood sexual abuse. Wow. It's a big number, but nobody's talking about it. And sometimes it can start with curiosity, which in my case it did. And it went on and off for about six years. Wow, that's, uh, so when, not not having an outlet like you were talking about and you became the outlet what without going into detail did this happen a couple times a day was this just like an a, a, a curiosity thing that eventually just built on to more yes yes so because we have a talking relationship i can actually ask my sibling hey why did this happen i'm having these memories are these accurate and my siblings very careful and they answer my questions and they are also very careful about not giving me more information than I've asked for so that I don't have more memories. I have enough to deal with. So it did start with curiosity and they told me that it started with curiosity and his body responded the way it should. And eventually my body started responding the way it should. He never threatened me, never coerced me. I believed that I was complicit in the sexual abuse. 
I felt like I was a willing participant, that it was just two kids being curious. And I spent decades believing that and yet having a lot of shame and embarrassment around it. It wasn't until I was about 45 that I realized, wait a second, that was more than two kids just being curious. As far as how often it happened, I'm not sure that I know. I know that I shut down and I left my body, but he has told me that he would take every opportunity to babysit me and would come into my room when I was sleeping. So it probably happened a lot more than I, than I know. Wow. Wow. Did your parents know about this? That was there, was there a thought in the mind to ever say, Hey mom, uh, mom, dad, this is what's happening. Never crossed my mind. Wow. Does that seem to be common in this, the, the, the sibling sexual abuse? I talk to a lot of survivors, a lot of survivors, thousands of survivors reach out to me daily. Parents reach out to me daily. And even the sibling who caused harm reaches out to me. So I do have a lot of intel. And I think it's very confusing for a child if you haven't been taught that you have body boundaries and you're allowed to say no. Now, hopefully parents these days are getting a little better about that. But when we're talking to our children about stranger danger, we also have to talk to them about, hey, siblings, cousins, step-siblings is a big one, and older adolescents. So it just, it didn't cross my mind. And at one point I, I did say something to my, my mom. She does not recall this, but she said something about, well, kids will be curious. And kids are curious, no doubt. Uh, there's also another situation where we think, my, my sibling and I, we think that my father walked in, but wasn't sure and then closed the door. Again, my parents, I, I firmly believe that they did everything they could. And, and parents don't want to think about this happening in their, their home. They, they don't. And it's, right. they don't want to see it. They don't want to hear it. And that's a normal human reaction. But if we bring about awareness and if parents are talking about it, if society's talking about it, then maybe we can handle it. What is normal in terms of that age? Like when your mom made that comment of this is normal, kids will be kids kind of thing. What is normal and what's not? I mean, I, I, I think, I mean, in my own mind, I can rationalize now as a 43-year-old, well, that's not normal, okay? Mm-hmm. But we're talking about a 12-year-old and a 6-year-old. Right, right. And, and first of all, the, the 12-year-olds who cause harm, they are not behaving from a 24-year-old perspective or an 18-year-old perspective. They are operating from a 12-year-old perspective. With, they are not with, with hormones. Right. They are not monsters. They are generally not perpetrators. There are those that are perpetrators, but generally they're, they're a person who causes harm. Uh, so you have asked the big question and you can read all the literature you want, but even the experts can't agree because there's not enough studies. There's not enough research. There's not enough survivors coming forward, but there are a few things that we know. They say generally, an age gap of two years or more, but I have survivors reach out to me and say, no, no, I was sexually abused by someone who was eight months older than me. So that's where it gets murky. And it can also depend on the type of touch. It can depend on the duration. Uh, It can depend on is there threats? Is there coercion? Is it hidden? Think, I think your general rule of thumb is curiosity is usually children of about the same age, same developmental level, same size, playing a spontaneous game of doctor and there's some giggling involved and right. it's done. Anything outside of that needs to be 
talked about. And if you walk in on your kids and you're not sure and you think something's happening, remain calm. We're parents. It's always a teachable moment, yeah. right? Sit down with them, ask them open-ended questions and use that as an opportunity to say, you know, we don't touch our siblings and we don't let our siblings touch us. And that includes cousins and older adolescents and, and open that dialogue because when they're teenagers, you're going to need that dialogue to be open and your door to be open anyway. So that just opens the door early. Right. So you said something about the harm. Was there, what kind of classical signs or is there classical signs? Cause I, I mean, I, I think as a guy, okay. So even at the age of 23, even when I started to become sexually active or even for me, cause I was introduced to pornography by the age of 12, you yeah. know, um, the hustler magazines or the, the, um, you know, some of the other magazines. So it became a curiosity thing first before there was ever any type of action, yeah. you know? And, and I think even it kind of goes back to the old, I'm dating myself, the old JC Penney's catalog, you know, with the, 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 the section where the girls were wearing the bras and the panties, you know, but I'm, I'm, I'm eight, 10, I'm 10, 11, 12 years old at the time. I don't know that it's wrong at all at that time. Now, you know, this day and age, we have to almost, compared to what we were seeing at that age, the most you ever saw on a TV commercial or a rap video or whatever the case may be is maybe bra and panties. You, you know, you didn't see what you see today. You, right. you can go on TikTok, Instagram, you can see a lot more uh, than what I think a 12 year old should be seen or a 10 or 11 or even a five year old. Um, yeah. So was there signs? Is there signs that like even adults, cause I'm telling you, this is not something that as a, as a father and now a widowed father that I even think about, I don't think about the sexual, the sibling sexual abuse. I just you think man, my, my daughter's 13 and she's liking guys and guys are liking her. And I'm like, Oh, okay, <laughs> boys, you better, you know, I, I know where their mind is at. Okay. Right. And all I can do is do my best to teach my daughter, you know, Hey, you're not letting boys kiss you right now. I'm sorry. You, you know, and, and you know, and not to put teaching her safe boundaries versus you can't do something because I don't want it done because that's just going to drive them to do it. But what are some clinical signs? What are some signs that parents can be looking at or even your sibling displayed that you know of now that you didn't know then? Well, I'm going to start this off by saying about 40% of sexual abuse victims show no signs. Yeah, first, I think as a parent, you need to understand we know our children and they don't change overnight for no reason. Right. Do they suddenly withdraw? Do they suddenly become very angry? I became very angry. I was volatile. Um, do they start wetting the bed? Do they have tummy aches, headaches? Do they not want to go somewhere? Do they want to sleep in your room? They're not trying to be a pain in the butt. They're trying to communicate something. They may not have the words. So, and, and, and you aren't thinking about it. And so many parents have reached out to me and have said, we didn't know this was a thing. We had no idea. And and with pornography, the, the blended families, it's a huge problem. Wow. Huge problem. I, the, what these children are coming across on with pornography and then acting out on their younger siblings and their step-siblings, 
I'm so passionate about this because it's tearing families apart. I have mothers reach out to me saying, is our family going to survive? And I don't know. Wow. It changes the whole family dynamic because the parent is, is, is torn. Uh, these two children, you love both children and you need to help both children. Or if you're a step parent, if it's the other parent's child, it's so messy, but it's such a problem. It, it truly is a problem. I, I have people reach out to me daily, daily. And they tell me, I thought I was the only one. I thought I was alone. Wow. Wow. You know, and that's the thing about, you know, the premise behind our podcast is, is we talk about pain, you know, and it's, and this is a new added, you know, subject for us because we talk about divorce, we talk about rejection, we talk about broken relationships, loss of loved ones, you know, we talk about suicide and drug addictions, but now we, we have another aspect or another category, I should say, if that's the right way to put it, of pain. And, you know, one for me, because I when, when my wife passed away, my, my father and my wife passed away, People's like, I, I can't imagine my, my pain of losing somebody doesn't match yours. I'm like, listen, I'm not here to match people's pain. Pain is pain. And we all deal with pain differently. Yes. Some pain sends people into severe depression. Some pain, pain, people can manage their way through it. And some pain is hidden, you know. But at the end of the day, it's still pain. And... I believe that pain can do one of two things. It can get you, it, it, it can get you stuck like glue and you never move forward in life and normally probably move backwards. Okay. Or it can launch you into your destiny. Right. Doesn't mean that it takes away the pain. Doesn't mean that it stops yeah. hurting. It doesn't. doesn't. It doesn't no. at all. It's just now, instead of me telling a story that woe is me, my dad and my wife died in the same month and I was abused my whole life and things like that. It's like, man, I'm taking that and I'm learning how to navigate through life. I'm 43 years old and I'm learning how to navigate through the pain that I dealt with as a six and seven and 10 and 15 and 25 and 30 and 40 year old. You know, right. um, how, how does one... How does one get through this kind of pain? What, what have well, you seen to help that has helped people? Right. Here's you and I have a lot in common <clears throat> because I lost my first husband to cancer when I was 34 and I discovered I was a widow at 34. And through that process, I had been so numb for so long. And my late husband did not know about my childhood sexual abuse. Wow. So when he died, I actually felt for the first time in a long time, I felt alive and I felt a little bit of joy, which, but I was also sad, which grief can be joy and sadness all of at course. once. And then I got remarried and had two children and that's when the memories came back and through that whole process. So I got remarried. I had two children. The memories came back yet. I was still grieving my late husband and it had been 10 years since he passed. And I thought I should be over this by now. Yeah. But something I finally realized maybe there's no finish line. Maybe there's no finish line to my grief of losing my first husband. And once I accepted that, That's I was good. able to process that better. And then I started thinking, I kept trying to heal, kept trying to heal, get through this childhood trauma so I could go on with my life. And I thought, well, maybe there's no finish line for that either. And that's not a negative way of thinking. It's a, a way of thinking for me is, 
okay, this is my story. I'm going to own it. And now I'm going to process it and become fully known and start sharing my story. So for me, I feel like I stumbled across some healing. I feel like God kind of gave me some little gifts because I should not be where I am yeah. really. I'm with I you. was a stripper. I lost my first husband. I was sexually abused. I should not be standing. I was suicidal, but I'm here. And I think it's kind of, I don't want to say by accident, but I feel like God gave me some tools by having to understand grief. Yeah. That was a huge gift. I understanding grief. I'm not grateful for the loss. I'm not grateful for the sexual abuse. I'm grateful for the lessons that I've learned yeah, from that's it. That's good. That's powerful. I think what's helped me is I wrote my story down. First of all, I wrote it down and I kind of got it out of my body and I had to reorganize my life. And I was like, oh, no wonder my life happened out of order. I was sexually abused. I knew too much about sex before I should have. And oh, I was a widow. I shouldn't have known about death. And, and writing it down and reorganizing it and getting it out and then starting to share it with my husband, my now husband, and being accepted and truly known because keeping all of that inside of you creates shame. It creates walls. I wasn't truly known. And I was called to share my story. I didn't want to share my story. Yeah. I thought I can talk about grief all day long. That can be my thing. But no, I kept getting this nudge. No, it's got to be sexual abuse. I'm like, okay, fine, sexual abuse. No, it's got to be sibling. I'm like, no, I no, I don't want this to be my thing. But I Googled it and I understood the statistics and I also saw nobody was talking about it. And I thought, we're all feeling alone. I need to find my people and let them know they're not alone. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, there's, there's one thing that, you know, as I'm developing our coaching content for, you know, for people, I, I kept on getting the question when I, when my wife was diagnosed with cancer, I felt in my heart to share our journey also. And of course I did not know anything about podcasting. All I did was just do YouTube or, or, or Facebook live videos, you know, and I would kind of document it that way. And so, you know, I kept on getting these questions. How in the world can you stay so joyful in the aspect of going through this? And then of course your, your wife and your dad dying and it was November of 2019, so it was right at 10 months after they both passed away. And it just kind of dawned on me. I'm like, why, why is it that I'm able to still smile? Now, behind that smile was still tears and was still everything in the world trying to hold that smile up. But I knew I had something greater to look forward. And there, there, there was a greater purpose beyond me. That was, yeah. That's where my smile was. Doesn't mean I didn't hurt. I hurt every single day you know, and it's, it's, it's neat that you say that about when you started writing your story, because I believe that vulnerability brings healing. Yeah. Okay. I also believe and not, and it's, it's, it's funny in my own mind that the, my, my, the pillars behind our, our, and I did a video on this is was number one was I had added, a, I had added another one later on, but number one to me was, um, creating goals, dreams, and visions how to get through this, creating goals, dreams, and visions. Now, people think, oh, one, three, five year, forget that. When you've gone through something like this, you're trying to get out of bed. That's a goal. Right. You know, <laughs> yeah. you're trying to sit up in bed. I, I like to break it down. I'm like, first you just wake up, you know, next yeah. is maybe just sit up in the bed. And then maybe the next day is put, sit, sit up where your feet are on the floor and then move to the couch that's in the same room by the bed, you know? So those became goals for me, you know? 
Then a second one was taking time to grieve because for me, I would grieve during my videos, my, my, my live Facebook videos where I was crying because for me, I couldn't be in the house sharing this and me weeping and crying in front of my kids and in front of my wife, not because I was embarrassed. That had nothing to do with it whatsoever, okay? It had to do with the depression my wife was already in and me drive, me possibly driving her more into depression because of she's seeing me weak. Now, of course, she knew I cried. She, she knew all that. But I kind of looked at it as I took my time to grieve and then I went in and I was strong. Right. You know, and not that we never cried together because we did, but I had to be the strong one for my wife and for my kids because yeah. I knew where it was leading her and where it was already at with her. And so I learned, hey, take time to grieve. And I would do it in 15 minute episodes, so to say. Now, I may only be happy for two minutes after that, man, I was back grieving, but I at least had two minutes, you know, two minutes of just taking a deep breath and not crying my eyes out, you know? Um, and then a third one was finding someone to help. And then the fourth one was helping them. But I've added in there, I've added forgiving yourself. Okay. But Simon Sinek, and I know you know who that is. Um, yes. He, I, I saw him on a talk show and, it, and I think it was either a YouTube video or a clip or something that I saw that he talked about a recovery process and he, 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 I, he had 12 steps to this and he didn't share what they all were, but he said, if you're working with, let's say an alcoholic and he says, and they don't do number 12, he said, they can do one through 11, but if they don't do number 12, they'll always be an alcoholic. And the 12th one was, is finding another alcoholic to share their story with and help them. And when I saw that, I heard that, I'm like, oh my God, I'm like, I'm doing that already. And I didn't even know it, <laughs> you know, because ultimately by me sharing my story and then when people were reaching out to me for help, they're like, by you sharing your story, you're helping me. And then of course they would share their things with me. And I'm like, you know what? This is what I did for me for, for this. It may work for you. It may not, but right. it helped me get through the process. And it also just, the more I shared the more things I discovered and then the more things I was recognizing that I need to be healed from. Cause I'm not healed from everything, but I'm walking in my healing. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's neat that you share that, but let me, as you have talked to your sibling, how has that helped you and how has that helped him? First of all, I am very fortunate that I can talk to my sibling. There is a story there. When I was 21, he apologized to me. That's the first step, which a lot of survivors don't get. Wow. When he apologized to me, I was taken aback. I, he said, I'm sorry for what I did to you when you were little. And I, my brain went, what did you do to me when you were little? And I froze. And my response was, it's okay. I participated. And I went on. I put that apology in a little box. I put it in my back pocket, but it was in my back pocket. Somewhere along the line, I knew that it was there. I knew that he knew what he had done. So maybe 20 years later, after his apology, I found myself incredibly depressed and angry. And I realized that this had impacted my life in a, in a negative way. Mm. Through a lot of counseling and therapy and a couple other zigzags and, and things that were placed in my path, I was able to forgive myself. Yeah, Because there was a six-year-old little girl who kept looking at me and I kept staring at her and I said, I don't know what you want. I put a picture of, of myself in the mirror 
And I said, I don't know what you want. I don't like you. I hate you. You, you are dirty or shameful. You didn't say anything. You enjoyed the touch. I didn't like her. At some point I was able to forgive her. And when I was able to forgive her, it led to forgiveness in other areas of my life. And eventually I was able to write my brother a letter of forgiveness. And he was shocked when he received the letter. He thought, Mm. I thought it was over. I apologize. I thought it was done. But through that process, I explained to him, I said, nobody's talking about this. We need to talk about it. You aren't the only 12-year-old boy. I'm not the only six-year-old girl. And he said, I will do whatever I can to help you heal. And I know. So he helped, he answers my questions, which I think really helps me understand because survivors, we want to understand why did you do it? Why did it happen? And I'm able to ask him those. And I think that helps other survivors when I can share my story and his apology. If, if that shows other people who cause harm, an apology goes a long, long, long way. Yeah. Now it's interesting that you talk about forgiveness. I was just on a show not too long ago that we were talking about the power of forgiveness And when I went up to my dad one day, I'm in my 20s at the time, I went up to tell him that I forgave him for the way he treated my mom and and stuff like that. And one thing that I realized is, one, when I told him I forgave him, he just kind of sat back in his chair and he says, well, I didn't know I was doing anything wrong. You know, and this is something that dawned on me and it didn't dawn on me until I was doing the show is we have to know and understand that when we go to somebody to ask for forgiveness or even tell them that we forgive them for what they did to us, whatever pain it may be that you've gone through the hurt, we may hear an answer that we didn't expect to hear. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I thought my dad was going to be very empathetic and say, you know what, son, I'm sorry. He didn't say sorry at all. Right. He didn't say sorry. Yeah, he didn't say sorry to my my brothers and sisters and I until my mom passed away. And that was a few years later, but and that's what broke him, but I'm like in my mind I'm like how in the world could you not could you even fathom that that was okay? But let me ask you this, if your brother would not have came to you and said forgive me, would it have been a memory? Would it have been brought up? Would would this been something you knew that happened, but didn't know that it was wrong or that it had been done wrong to you. Well, talk to me about that. It would have come back. It would have it come came back. back. The memories came back and they reared their ugly head. Yeah, They really did. And I think when the memories came back and I was angry and I was depressed, I, I remembered his apology, but it didn't mean much to me at that time. So I think it, I still would have gone after him in some form. Yeah, I I had to be known. I had, there was a little girl inside of me stomping her feet, screaming, saying, no, no, I need to be heard. I need to be heard. And she wasn't going to go away. And I still refer to her in the third person. Of course. Um, (laughs) So it was going to come out. It it was, it had to come out somehow, some way, or I, I was going to, I was going to go into a very bad place. Yeah. Did did the start of that lead you to being sexually active at a very young age outside of that with other, with relationships or even, I know you mentioned about being a stripper. Did it lead you down that direction? I believe it did. I, because I knew too much about sexual feelings 
and and it feels good. My yeah. body reacted. My yeah, body didn't know, okay, this is your brother. It's supposed to feel good. I've, yeah, it's supposed to feel good. My body responded the way it was supposed to. And then he went away to college. And yeah. I'm thinking the best way I can describe it is he left me like like a child addicted to crack. And right. I'm thinking, okay, where am I going to get my next fix? And I trained my brain to think that I needed a boy's attention in order to feel validated. I needed someone to want to sleep with me in order to feel validated. And so, yeah, I slept around. I barely graduated high school and then I became a stripper and, and stripping was very empowering for a short period of time. It was very validating yeah. for a short period of time. And yeah. that's actually where my, where I met my first husband, the one that passed away from cancer. So it was all, it's a crazy life story, but it, it all seems to work. Right. Right. <laughs> Do you still find yourself at this age seeking validation, not in that realm, but just in as a human seeking validation because of not getting it at a young, as a young girl, the way you needed to get it? Hmm. That's a pretty deep question because I have grown so much yeah. in, just since shedding my layers. I mean, I used to be a shy little girl and now I'm getting ready to go on the TEDx stage in front of a thousand member audience. So, but there's a lot of insecurities there as as I'm writing this talk and I don't feel worthy and I end up in a pile of uh, tears. So certainly the validation isn't as, I don't need it as much, uh, but I am human for sure. And, but I think some of that's gone away with age. I'm in my fifties. Age is a beautiful thing when it comes to that. Um, Certainly less don't need male attention. I've got a very good husband. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. So what has been your biggest discovery throughout this? Has it been more of the fact of what you've gone through or how there's not a lot of information out there, not a lot of education and it's happening to so many people or is it both? I think it's both, but we are slowly gaining momentum and that's very rewarding. I'm actually pretty connected with someone who wrote the book sibling sexual abuse and he rehabilitates the child who causes harm mm. and we actually kind of work together we've done a couple podcasts together Amazing. i'm also working with a couple moms and another survivor to build a website so that when families discover this they have somewhere to go i'm trying to bring about awareness i am finding my people i'm in my 50s but yes i'm on tiktok but that's where i'm finding my people I'm finding so many people wow. and people are able to message me. And that's where, you know, parents do message me. And like I said, the sibling who caused harm messages me. They are the sibling who causes harm. A lot of them live in, in a lot of shame and a lot of pain as well. It's so. Now, not to compare one to another, but you said that your brother was very passive about things, was not threatening but then you also have the flip side of people dealing with a lot of trauma at that age because of the sexual abuse, right? because of they're forced or they're, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of that, you know, and I'm just going to stay on the sibling side. I'm not even going to go on the parent or, or parental side of things, you know, um, do you, do you come across the trauma just as much as you do, even with yours, not saying that you didn't have trauma, but the the forced, I should say, sexual, the sibling sexual abuse versus the past of like what you went through. Yes. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of siblings were threatened 
uh, other siblings. I was not. So that's that's hard for me to wrap my head around, but right. it's very common. Do you see that more in particular homes? Is there any type of statistic on financial or demographic or no? No family is immune. No wow. family is immune. And if you have one child, you're still not immune because you may have cousins or your child. I, I don't want to scare everybody, but if you could read these messages and there's a new study coming out and they're saying it could be as high as 57%. So 57% of families, 57% of child sexual abuse is sibling or child on child. That's a new study that that is coming out in February, but we know it's 40%. So we can stick with that number. So say your child goes to spend the night at a friend's house, older sibling. And unfortunately, I'm not going to fight the porn industry. I'm not going to rattle that cage, but that's a whole nother aspect that we have. Yeah. What is the government? What is the states? What is legislature doing? No, they're not taking, they don't take it seriously. I'm also a member of a parent Facebook group and it's hard for parents. It's hard for lawyers. It's hard for the courts to understand, okay, this 12 year old, uh, not sexually abused, but flat out, you know, I don't even want to say the word, uh, but 12 year olds are doing this to six year olds. They are. And it's hard to wrap your head around it if we aren't talking about it. And in the UK, they're, they're, they're doing more studies, Yeah, but we are way behind. And even the States, when something happens, they aren't aligned. Some States are thinking, okay, well, we gotta, we gotta send you to jail. We've got to treat you as an adult. Other, other States are thinking, okay, let's just get you therapy or let's just put you back in the home. There's no alignment. Wow. So we have a lot of work to do a lot. Are they jumping straight to the conclusion that it's rape? Sometimes it is. What? But you need proof. And then it's hard to believe that your 12 year old would do that. And it's just very messy. It just. Yeah. Do they ever say anything like, well, it was consensual because you didn't say no? Yes. They, they do. And, and sometimes parents don't believe a teenager. Let's say, say a teenager comes to an, a parent and says, when they're about 12 or 14 and says, somebody did this to me five years ago. Then the parent looks at the teen and says, why didn't you stop it? But we know with even adults who are sexually assaulted, you freeze or you flight. And and it's even more confusing when it's someone you love, when it's a sibling or or cousin. But yeah, a lot of parents, it's easier to deny than to, to process it. And and I get that I'm a mom of two teen boys and I'm, I'm hoping I'm doing everything that I can. So let me, let, let's switch subjects. Okay. Because I am a parent, you're a parent, you know, I have a 13, 11, um, a blended, um, stepdaughter or soon to be, um, in the future, she'll, she's seven. And then I have a three-year-old. What do I, what do parents out there, the listeners, what do they need to do for precaution and not overreacting, you know, but still, um, being precautious or what can we look out for? I think the first thing, the first line of defense is education. Talking to your children when they're, when they're preverbal, start reading to them when they're two and three, reading them 10 different body safety and secret books. That way they hear it 10 different times, 10 different ways. And then keep educating them. Don't stop when they're five years old. Don't stop when they're seven. And when they're teens, when they're, when they're in puberty, there's lots of books and I, I have my favorite books listed on my website. I've read most of them and my kids, I've, my poor kids, <laughs> they've been <laughs> educated 
But there's a lot of books that talk about if you open that door and you talk about what their body's going to go through and make that door open so they can ask you questions. And in my home, sometimes I know they ask my husband questions. He doesn't tell me what they ask. They know that that's a closed door that that's between them. Lots of books on my website. I have lots of research and lots of resources. That's the biggest thing is we educate them and we keep an eye on them and we don't leave two children alone. It is better in threes because it's less likely to happen, but then again, it can happen in groups. I think your biggest thing is education and talk to them and keep your eyes and your ears open. Yeah. Now you said something about your boys going to your husband and that being a safe place. Do they come to you at all because you being a female? They haven't. They haven't. Okay. <laughs> they haven't, but they've been read a lot of books. Every yeah. book that's on my website, they've been read. And there's actually some book, good books on pornography. Um, these are not my books. I'm not selling them. I'm not writing them. I don't get anything from this. I am a full-time advocate. Um, one that's called good pictures, bad pictures, because it's not a matter of if your child's going to come across pornography, it's a matter it's a win. of when, and when they come across it, they see it and their body reacts and their body feels good. And yeah. that's okay. But as long as their brain knows, okay, I need to walk away from this. Right. So what kind of tips would you have for a single father with a daughter <laughs> that's at that age? Cause I, I'm there. At the risk of categorizing, I will say that males between 10 to 14 are our biggest risk. And when we have a child who's a male 10 to 14, it's okay to talk to them and explain to them, you are at risk of touching a younger child. I think that they need to be educated that your daughters, girls, less likely, but I've had survivors reach out to me and tell me, no, my sister sexually abused me. Wow. A communication, I think communication and talking to them because they don't want to be the, the, the child who causes harm. They don't want to be on that end of it either. Yeah. They don't because the, these these messages that I receive, uh, that the words, the terms that they describe themselves as, I'm not going to repeat them because I don't want them to think that I'm repeating things that they've said. But of course, they need grace too. They yeah. those those children who cause harm, they need they need grace too. In most oh. in most situations, both, I know of situations both sides. where, yeah, yeah. both both sides need grace. I mean, those yeah. that have caused the harm and then those that received it, you know. Um, because, uh, you know, six-year-old you didn't know that was wrong? I did not. On some level, I knew something was wrong, but I didn't have the words. And then I felt like I was hiding the abuse as well. I was becoming complicit. Yeah. It's, 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 I would describe this type of abuse as it's not black and white. It's not cut and dry. And I always say it has tentacles because it, it just kind of goes through the whole family. Right, right. What are you doing in terms of, I know you're an advocate for this, but are you coaching? Are you mentoring people? Or I know you're going to be on the TED Talk. Um, you know, what are you doing behind, besides just your talking to help people? I'm talking. Yeah. I'm talking. I'm not going away. I am bringing about awareness. I am not coaching. I'm not a therapist. And when people reach out to me and asking me certain questions, I can always tell them I'm not a coach, I'm not a therapist, and I can send them to certain websites that might have the resources. I'm not going to pretend to have all the answers. I'm still healing. Right. I've got very good ears. And I, I do have survivors reach out to me anonymously and 
share their stories with me. And I, I hear you, I see you, I believe you, and you can reach out anytime. So that's what I'm doing. Has this become full-time for you? Yes. <laughs> I'm also a moderator of a Facebook group with 10, with nine other moderators for survivors. There's 5,000 survivors, 10 moderators, and that's, that's just, a full-time job. Just sibling sexual abuse? No, I apologize. Survivors of sexual abuse. Okay. Survivors yeah. of sexual abuse. Wow. Yeah. And I'm on the board of, um, a new, a new group called incest aware. So that's what I'm doing. I'm just bringing about awareness and just trying to be there. And it has turned into a full-time job. Well, I hate that, that that's a full-time job for you, you know? Um, but thank God that, um, you know, God has put those things in your heart and given you those tools to not only for yourself, but also to help and influence and encourage and teach and or educate other people, both survivors and, you know, people that haven't been involved in it and, and educating those people because I would have never thought, I, I, I thought on the parental side of things um, and then also, you know, like relatives, uncles, things like that. Because you heard, you, you, you have a tendency to hear more of those stories you know, yep. that I was sexually abused by my uncle or my father or, you know, because I've heard that a lot even growing up, but um, not even, um, I was, I was afraid to change my daughter's diaper when I was younger because I was so paranoid of it. You know, I'm sure. like, I don't want to, I, I don't want and to. And I've heard you know? that. I've heard yeah. that from, from men. And yeah. I, I will, I would like to say is that sibling sexual abuse, child on child sexual abuse is three to five times more common father-daughter incest. Wow. But nobody's talking about it. It is a silent epidemic. How can people get the word out? How can people be educated on it? Besides, like, I know you said the, the, the reading of the books and things like that, but where do people go to find this stuff? <laughs> Another problem. Google. You Google. And the, yeah. and, and the problem is that parents come across this. It happens in their family and they have nowhere to go. No, right. no, there's, there's very few resources. And so that's why we are building this website and we are trying to help families so that these parents and survivors don't come across the same things we came across. Yeah. Now, when I Googled sibling sexual abuse five years ago, there may be a couple outdated, outdated articles. That was it. Today, we are starting to gain momentum. We are. So hopefully in the next three to five years, it'll be even better. Wow. But if, if somebody's listening to your show and they're looking for resources, they can, they can reach out to me and we can see if we can find what they're looking for. Absolutely. Now I want to talk a little bit about your Ted talk. What, sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> I know you've had a lot of going into that. What is it all about the sibling sexual abuse? Is there any more to it? Um, how did that happen for you? Well, I am trying to bring about awareness and the TV stations, they don't want to hear from me. They, this is not, this does not bring up ratings. Right. So I kept thinking, well, how else can I do this? And so I started looking into a TEDx talk and I have a great TEDx coach and I selected Boca Raton, Florida, because their theme was defining moments. I thought, great. That's, that's a great theme. It's January, Boca Raton, great time of year, great location. Put my application in, had no idea that Boca Raton is almost impossible to get into. And I kind of slid sibling sexual abuse through the back door. I wasn't going to have it at the forefront of my talk. And they got me on Zoom and they said they wanted me, but they wanted me to talk about sibling sexual abuse. And I said, excellent, I can do that. Wow. So Open I have door. 10 Thank minutes. 
talk about sibling sexual abuse on the Boca Raton or the TEDx Boca Raton stage. It's an amazing opportunity. It's a great door opener for whoever comes after me. This needs to be brought about. Absolutely. Absolutely. Ms. Jane, how can people get in contact with you if they want to either either share their story or maybe know people or maybe just want to be educated? Sure. My website is complicatedcourage.com. And I'm on Instagram, Jane underscore complicated courage. Those are part there's a Facebook page as well, but Instagram seems to work really well to get messages through. Or if you go to my website, you can email me from my website. And those are probably the best ways to reach me. Yeah. How can, how can parents, how can parents get through, or what have you seen? What, what's a tip that you can give parents that may realize that they, this is going on in their own family? Breathe, remain calm, and get both of your children help. Denying it and pushing it under the rug is not going to help anybody. Yeah. It, 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 you, if you get your child, if you get the sibling who causes harm help, it's not like they're going to grow up to be a Josh Duggar. If you get them help, if you don't get them help, they, they might become a Josh Duggar. It does no good to do anybody help. It does no good to brush it under the rug. So if you're a parent and this is happening in your home, first of all, the statistics don't lie. Know that you are not alone. Yeah. Reach out for help. Get both of your children help and get yourself help because it doesn't do anybody any good to brush it under the rug and ignore it. Wow. It's, it's sad that we live in this, this world, that this happens, you know? Um, but I thank God for people like yourself that God's given you the strength to be able to walk through this, you know, and not saying that it's easy, not saying that it's, um, I, I believe that it's possible, you know, um, just like what I've walked through. I believe that it's possible, but it's a journey and it's got the, 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 you know, no one's ever climbed a smooth mountain, right? You know, it's got all the jagged edges and rocks and trips and falls and, you know, all the climbing that's a part of it, you know? And so I'm thankful for people like yourself that can come on here and be open and be transparent because I know the transparency is, is, has helped in your own healing. And I want to ask you one last question. What does the title purpose through pain? What is the words purpose through pain mean to you when you hear that? I'm going to kind of answer this the way I answered my history in that I am grateful for everything that I have learned because of what I've gone through. I'm, I'm not grateful for the childhood sexual abuse. And I, I can finally be grateful for the loss of my first husband, but that took me a long time to get there. It's been 19 years. Wow. I learned so much from that. And purpose through pain means to me, I can feel I'm empathetic. I have a very good ear. I don't sweat the small stuff. I still do on occasion, but I appreciate the sunny days. I appreciate the rainy days. And I really, really try to not judge people because I think we're all doing the best we can. And those are all things that I've learned from my, perp, my, my pain. 
Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much. I've got one question that just popped up in my mind and I don't want to delay the show any, but of course you have triggers. You have triggers. There's probably no doubt in my mind that you have triggers when it comes to the sexual involvement with your husband and things like that. Um, how does somebody on his, uh, in his shoes help you when something is triggered? That's the great big elephant in the room. <laughs> Intimacy for me is a huge, huge struggle. And I have to give my husband a lot of credit. He's been fiercely loyal. He's been there for me. And when I finally told him what had happened to me, he was quiet. And then he said, I'm sorry that happened to you. He has allowed me to share my story. And when I tell him no more questions, he respects that. Wow. It's a very, very hard road to travel as a spouse in this situation. And in fact, I had a spouse reach out to me. His wife had passed away and he'd written her a love letter. And it was absolutely beautiful. And it talked about how he really loved her, even though she had gone through so much and she didn't feel worthy. And it was just, it was just absolutely beautiful. It's a hard journey. It's, it's a hard place to be, and it's going to require a lot of time and a lot of patience. Yeah. Absolutely. Ms. Jane, thank you so much for your advice. Thank you so much um, for just, you know, not that what you've gone through, but how you've gone through it, because it is an inspiration to, to so many people. And even just sitting here listening to your story, it definitely opens my, my ears and my eyes and my mind to not to be oblivious about things like this, you know, um, because ultimately I, it's kind of one of those things that like for me, you hear people, you know, passing away of cancer and things like that, but it's a whole different thing that when you have to live through it, you know, and you're living through it with your spouse. So I can't imagine what you've gone through, but thank you so much for being transparent, being vulnerable and coming on the show and just sharing your heart. Well, thank you, because I think that we are all connected by our stories. And I think someone will hear something in my story, even if they weren't sexually abused. We're all connected. Like you and I just have so much yes. in common, our stories. Absolutely. So thank you. Absolutely. Yes, ma'am. Guys, please do not hesitate to reach out to Miss Jane and on her website, on her email. She's also on TikTok and Instagram. Don't hesitate. If you have questions, if you know of somebody or even have experienced sibling sexual abuse or any type of sexual abuse, this lady right here, she will. I know she will do her best just talking to her for a few minutes off stage. She is passionate about this subject and about this healing, not only for herself, but for so many other people. So please reach out. Don't forget to subscribe and share. And we love you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Purpose Through Pain podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to share with a friend and leave a five-star review on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe through your favorite podcast host so you won't miss a single episode. You're one step closer to finding true freedom and breakthrough.